0: And it's a joy to preach this morning here, and we're going to read together from Romans chapter one, and we're just going to read the first few verses of that of that chapter. Romans chapter one. Let me read the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may be regular coming to this church, in which case you will be very familiar with the word gospel. You may be new to the church and you've heard the word gospel, you've heard of gospel music, but do you know what the word gospel means? And in this little letter of Paul to the Romans, the the issue that Paul has uppermost in his mind is helping his readers, people he hasn't met yet, people he's heard about. He, he's, he knows some of the names of the people in, in Rome who are Christian believers. He mentions them at the end of the book, but he hasn't met them yet. He hasn't been to Rome yet. But his big concern is that they should get the gospel right, that is, that they should understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ, what this message of Jesus Christ is, and and that they would get it right, and that they would get it into their hearts and shaping their lives, and then that they would get it out to the world and share it uh, with others. And the question I want to ask this morning is, how do we get the gospel right? The book of Romans is where Paul starts. Actually, he mentions the word gospel uh, 13 times. In fact, the whole book is bracketed by references to the gospel. So, if you were reading the book as a whole and you were then putting it down and someone were to ask you, what do you think the book of Romans is about? I think what you would have to say is that the book of Romans is about the gospel, And often first usage is defining as to what follows. And we're looking at the first usage of the word gospel there. It's right in the second line of my translation anyway, at least part of the word gospel is. And then it goes into the third line, but there it is right at the very beginning, the very first sentence. Paul is saying that he's a servant of Christ Jesus, that he's called to be an apostle, that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. That's His focus. We know that this word gospel is telling us that the message of salvation is good news. That's what the word gospel comes from, good news. It is good news announcing the greatest of all goods for humanity. Now, I'm thinking of the word good there in the way in which we think of all the good things that there, there is in the world, all of the goods that we are surrounded with. And we were driving north the other day with uh, things growing on either side of the road, and, and I saw the luxurious growth that there is here in California, the, the amazing agriculture here. Surely all of that Provision is a good thing, isn't it? All of that provision of food and the ability to grow it in this rich soil is a good that God has given to us. Uh, When we went to the national park and we saw the wonders of nature, surely that is a good that God has given to us to excite our imagination and to please the eye. Surely this planet is full of good things. Now, when we come to the Bible and we look at this word gospel, this word gospel is good news about the greatest of all goods. What is the greatest good? Well, we discover in this chapter later on that, that everything God made was good. When God created the world, everything that God made when He created the world, He pronounced good. But that's not what the gospel is about. We could talk about forgiveness, perhaps. Maybe you struggle with with your past, and and the idea of feeling forgiven from your past, that would be a great thing, and that would be a good, and it would be a good good, but it wouldn't be the greatest good. And there are many goods that we have in our life. Peace, for example, a sense of peace. If you're in struggle and turmoil, and you come into a sense of peace, that's a good thing. But in the Bible, the greatest good is the union of humans with God the greatest good is the union of humans with God we think of the words of the psalmist when he said it is good for me to be near God when when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's near the end of his life he's about to be arrested that very night when he's about to be arrested and he is He recognizes that these men are going to feel orphaned because He's going to be taken away from them. They don't know what life is like without Jesus. They've had Jesus with them for the last three years. They've been everywhere with Him. The thought of Him being taken away from them was a depressing thought. He realized that. He saw it in their eyes, and He said, you're going to feel like orphans, but I want you to know this. The Holy Spirit will come, and the Holy Spirit will take up residence in your life. And when the Holy Spirit comes, I will come to you, and I will be with you, and I will be in you. And when the Holy Spirit comes, my Father, and I will come, and we will live within you, and we will dwell with you. The greatest of all good summarized, and that greatest of all promises that Jesus gives to His people is that we will have union with God. When Jesus, later on that very night, is praying for His people, praying for His church, and He's talking to His Father, He says to the Father, Father, I will that those that You have given Me be with Me where I am and may see My glory. That the ultimate destiny of the children of God is to be with God forever and to enjoy God forever Because the ultimate good that God can give you is Himself. That's the primary thought that we have here in the book of Romans. And we could summarize this idea of having God in terms of a threefold union. We think, first of all, of the union of God and humanity in Jesus Christ. It's nearly Christmas. You may not want to hear that news, but basically as soon as August is over, I start thinking about Christmas. I've got a reputation for being a a Christmas fanatic, decorating and all the rest of it, and in the church I'm always harping on about it and getting them to decorate earlier and earlier, and I'm getting resistance but I keep at it because I just love Christmas. And Christmas is all about the union of God and humanity in Jesus Christ. The incarnation, we call it, when when, uh, God becomes incarnate by the Virgin Mary in Christ Jesus, when the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And the incarnation is very good news for us. It's very good news for us. But then there's a second aspect. The union of God and human beings by the believer's adoption as a child of God. The believer's adoption as a child of God. In uh, Psalm 82, it says this, I said, you are God's, small g., Sons of the Most High, all of you. Jesus picks up that, and He argues with the people of His day who are arguing about Him, saying that He is the Son of God. What do you think God meant when He said, you're all gods? That is, you're all sons of God, talking to the people of Israel. And one of the greatest privileges we have is, as believing people is that we've been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then the third union is the has to do with our adoptive sonship, not, not, not only now, but in its completed sense. Uh, this is how Paul John puts it, I think, in first John chapter 3. He he says this beloved, now are we the sons of God. But but it doesn't, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. In other words, when people look at us, they don't see any different from anybody else. We just look the same, uglier, but just the same as everybody else. But when He, Jesus, shall appear, and we appear with Him in glory, we will be like Him. We will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And the ultimate goal of God's adopting us as His sons is that one day we will be perfectly conformed into the likeness of Jesus not only His moral likeness, not only His spiritual likeness, but His physical likeness. That is, we will have a resurrection body like His glorious body. That is the point and purpose. That is what we mean when we talk about eternal life. We're talking about entering into the very life of God because God is eternal and God lives eternally. And to have eternal life is to have something that only God has enjoyed up until this moment. We will enter into the perfection of that life. And this was the good news. This is the good news that Isaiah, the prophet, referred to when he was saying in Isaiah 52 How can they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet! of those who preach the good news, who publish peace, who bring good tidings of good, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What is the ultimate in this relationship we have with God? Here is how Jesus sums it up for us in John 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Well, that was the introduction. Let's come to the text and and follow with me as we hear what Paul says in this little introduction about the gospel. He begins by saying that the gospel is the gospel of God. How does he mean that? It's the gospel of God. It is as Paul puts it in Galatians, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel is not a human invention. It's not a good idea that somebody dreamed up in uh, in some research lab somewhere. The gospel is not made by man. In fact, the gospel is not something that human beings intrinsically and by nature like. In fact, we, we're, we're allergic to the gospel. It, it goes against all the biases of our sinful nature. It, it does not by nature entice us or attract us or appeal to us. It does not therefore arise from human reason or observation Nature, nature outside may point us to God. It may tell us something about the enormity of God and the brilliance of God in, in designing it all, but it doesn't take us to the gospel of God. The gospel of God, therefore, requires God to do something more than simply what He's done in nature. It requires that God reveal Himself, special revelation, a special revelation This was the Apostle Paul's experience. He tells us in Galatians. He says, you know, I I couldn't get my head around the gospel of God. In fact, I was allergic to it. I hated it. I wanted to kill the Christians that were talking about it. We're very glad there aren't too many Apostle Pauls around pre-conversion because he was determined to stamp out the church of God because he hated what he heard in the gospel. But then he tells us that he had a revelation. God revealed himself to him. Perhaps it was on the road to Damascus when he had a vision of Jesus and Jesus spoke to him by name and and introduced himself to Saul when Saul cried out, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But at some point in his life, he had a revelation, as it were, when all at once, God showed him What the gospel was all about. We know there was an experience in his life when he was caught up into paradise and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. But he had a revelation of the gospel of God. And one of the things he argues about when he's teaching his stuff is that this did not come from his own imagination. This was something revealed to him by God himself. The gospel of God is, is of God because it's by God's initiative, and it's by divine revelation. And in Isaiah 21, Isaiah says this, What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. In other words, the only way we know the gospel is because it's been preached, it's been announced, it's been proclaimed by those whom God... Has sent. That leads us on to the second aspect, what he says here. The gospel is the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Not only did the gospel need to be revealed by God, the gospel did not start out of nothing, out of the blue we might say, at the time of Jesus. The gospel has a backstory. And the back story to the gospel is the story of Israel, the relationship that God built with Israel when He came, in, and at Mount Sinai He met with them, having made this amazing display of His power by, by ra- rescuing them from Egypt and then breaking, bringing them through the sea, the Red Sea, over the many miles of the Red Sea, paving it for them put, so that they walked over on dry land with walls of water on either side to the other side and then drowning the Egyptians who chased them into the water. That was, a, that was etched in their memory. The generation who were there and the generation of children who went with them could not get that out of their mind. They had a mighty demonstration of the reality of God. Then they went to, to the desert. They got to Mount Sinai, and once again, there was a, a fire and light display and sound display of God's glory as God spoke to them, and it terrified them. But all that demonstration of God was the context in which He made promises to Israel, and He made a revelation to Israel, and He he spoke to Israel, and He declared to them throughout their history, this is how He puts it, this is how God puts it, I declared my promises to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. That was God's way. He would say to the people, this is what I'm going to do. Then he does it, and then he says to them, do you see how I did what I told you I was going to do? That's great. Now, I want you to learn from that, that I can do anything that I tell you I'm going to do, because I've done these things in your history You can trust me when I tell you that I'm going to do even more significant things in the future. So Isaiah the prophet tells us that God says He's going to do new things. He's going to bring in everlasting joy and everlasting salvation, and He's going to do the whole thing through a suffering servant, one who would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, let's pause for a second. When Paul writes this, he's writing this this to the people in Rome, and we know, we know from history that, that some of the pagan opposers to Christianity in that time derided Christianity, despised it, just threw it out because they said it was something new, something new. And so, one of the emphases that the early Christian preachers had to make was to say, look, what we're teaching is nothing new. It's been going around for the last 2,000 years. Longer. What what we're teaching to you has a backstory in the story of Israel. So, when Paul's teaching in in Acts chapter 13, he begins by calling on Jews and Gentiles and God-fearers to think how God called Abraham, how God led Israel, how God anointed David, how God promised a Messiah, and He says, wrapping it all up, all that God did, finds its ultimate expression in the gospel. So the gospel is rooted in divine revelation, and the gospel is found in holy scripture. You see, in Paul, you know, He points out here in verse two, the prophets in the holy scriptures. God called these holy men of God. He he gave them by the Holy Spirit. He carried them along in in the current of revelation. These men spoke from God. Amos 3 verse 7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. And the Apostle Peter says of Jesus to him, Did all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives the forgiveness of sins through His name? And that revelation is in the Holy Scriptures. You see that. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we study the Bible. Why? Because the revelation of God has been given to us in a written form so that it does not change simply from passing it from mouth to mouth. It's unchanging. But the gospel here's the third thing, is primarily the gospel concerning His Son. That is God's Son. He is the focus of the gospel. It's the gospel of God because it's about God and His Son. And what you have to understand is that when it talks about God and His Son, it's not talking about me and my sons. It's not talking about the relationship between a human father and His Son. Whenever the Bible talks about God and His Son, it's, it's actually Son becomes simply a repetition of the word God. Because to be God's Son is to share everything that God is. Just as if you have a human son, he shares everything that's human. Gets all of his humanity from, from you, from his mother and father. Well, Jesus doesn't have a mother. He is eternally God's son because he is a repetition of the nature and the being of God. And there's only one God, so he shares that, rep, that, that uh, nature. And if, don't worry about that if you don't understand it. That's what the Bible teaches. So when it says here that the gospel is primarily good news of the Son of God, it's talking about God's eternal Son. It's the one who has always been with God. Ignatius uh, says these words refer to our God, Jesus, the Messiah. There's a little phrase in, in Proverbs 30 and verse 4 where, where Solomon, when he's writing his Proverbs, and he's, he's dwelling on... on uh, on what's been revealed up to that point, is puzzled by one little thing that he's picked up as he's studied Judaism and he's reflected on it. And here's, here's how it's put when he's talking about God who has, ascend, who has ascended to heaven and come down, who, who has gathered the wind in His fists, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely somebody knows. That's in Proverbs. And the solution to that mystery that faced Solomon is in the gospel concerning. God's Son, because it's only the gospel that reveals the Son of the Father, and the Father does so from the very beginning of the story. This is my beloved Son. But you can't talk about the gospel concerning His Son without talking about God. So you think of any verses you might know, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He, the Son, the the gospel of the, the Son is the power of God unto salvation. You don't get away from God by speaking about Jesus. By speaking about Jesus, you're brought back to God. In fact, by his death and resurrection, he reconciles us to God. In fact, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You cannot distinguish, you cannot separate uh, between the two two things. And so at the baptism, God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So, the gospel concerns God and his Son. He's set forth here as as the Father's, the repetition of the Father, the living uh, image of the Father. Always been face to face with God, the creator, sustainer of all things. And when the New Testament calls Jesus Son, it points us back to the Father who has always reigned and lived in eternity. Just take a a moment to consider the use of this word, son, in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we we discover there was a a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day about the Sabbath, Shabbat. And at the heart of the conflict was that this Sabbath, in, in Jewish thinking and Bible thinking, was a matter of rest because God rested from creating on the seventh day. And so Israel rested from creating on the seventh day. And this was a real issue. This was the real issue behind the criticism of Jesus' disciples. I don't know if you know the story where they're walking through a wheat field. It's a Sabbath day. They're out for a Sabbath day's walk, so they're keeping... The, into the distance that was allowed them by the rabbis, uh, but they're going through a field, and as they're going through, they allow themselves to kind of pull, pluck some heads of corn, and they rub them in their hands, and when they've taken off the outer part, they eat them, and somebody saw them doing this and accused them of working on the Sabbath day. We laugh and we think, oh, working, <laughs> you're just rubbing your hands, but you were working, technically working on the Sabbath day, and they challenged Jesus. But that whole incident, the whole incident about them challenging Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, is preceded by what's called the messianic shout. Jesus, out of the blue, shouts. He shouts these words, I thank Thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And have revealed them to children. And then they get on to him about his disciples working on the Sabbath day. And in response to that, Jesus says to them, The Son of Man, that's Himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. And one Jewish rabbi in one of his books asked this question, Is this really so? That your Master, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath? I ask again, is your Master God? Is your Master God? To be Lord of the Sabbath? the Jews understood, meant that Jesus was claiming to be God. The gospel concerns God and His Son. And this is the really great thing that Jesus Christ has done. He has brought God down to us. one of C.S. Lewis's books, he says, there was a time when the whole universe, he who filled the whole universe, became a little baby thing. And that's the amazing story of the incarnation. And the gospel is the gospel of God, the Son, taking our human nature. He goes on to say this. His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, we're moving from the eternal divine life of the Son to His earthly human life. And you may or may not be interested in this, but there's a a particular Greek word used here that it's not the normal word for human birth. It's another word which means to become rather than to be born, to, to come to exist. And the word denotes a change of status or a change of mode of existence. So we might say that it means to transition, and that's what really happens. The Son of God transitions by taking on human nature by, be, by just being descended from the seed of, of Abraham of David. In other words, he took on our human existence within the genealogical line of David. That was the mechanism by which his change of status occurred. He was united to human nature within the womb of the Virgin Mary. He took his human DNA from her, he took his human nature from her. He was hers entirely in terms of his humanity. That was the miracle in the womb of Mary. And there's a delicacy of expression that surrounds the the way in which this is put in the text. John Calvin, who you may have heard of, says, you know, there are two things that need to be found in Christ in order that we can be saved in Him. There must be divinity and humanity. Humanity. And His divinity possesses power and righteousness and life, which are conveyed to us by His humanity. Christ is manifested in the flesh, and in the flesh He declares Himself to be the Son of God. You can see how it's put here, according to the flesh. So, we are to think of this Son according to the divine, on the one hand, and according to the flesh on the other. And he uses the flesh word in order to denote the reality of the humanity of Christ. He took on a real human nature, made of flesh, like ours is. So, both the glory of the divine nature and the lowliness of the human nature are captured right at the very beginning of the statement of the gospel. Stand back for a moment. The gospel is about God. The gospel is about God's Son. The gospel is about God's Son taking on our humanity. The gospel is about, our, uh, about God's Son taking on our humanity for the sufferings of death. That's not mentioned here. That's dealt with later on in Romans. But for the sufferings of death, in order that He might take our place, in order that He might be obedient on our behalf, in order that he might be the righteousness of God that we need. In fact, that's what it goes on to say there in verses 16. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel contains, is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The absolute moral perfection of God is revealed in the gospel. The beautiful perfection of God is revealed in the gospel. And you see it it, visible in Christ. You see him keeping the law of God, you see him living by the word of God, you see him showing off the loveliness of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God and the goodness of God and the love of God, you see it in every action of his life. You see how attractive God is because you see it in something that is recognizable to you. You see it in human nature. You see it in the way he touches the leper. You see it in the way he forgives the prostitute. You see it in the way he accepts the attention of the woman who pours her expensive ointment over his feet. You see it in the way he receives the stranger. You see it in the way he takes time with that woman of Samaria to explain who he is and engage her. She was a bright lady. Engage her in the deepest theology you find in all of the New Testament. You see it in his undergoing his death on the cross. You see God with skin on, our skin, living a life that pleases God in our human flesh, human flesh. With all its weakness, its decay, its fragility, its mortality, flesh. You have no idea how much that got up the noses of the people when Paul first wrote that. Because there was Greek philosophy in the background. Greek philosophy said, you know, the spirit is good, the flesh is bad. Flesh is evil. Flesh is dirty. How did the Son of God come? In flesh. Our flesh. But then he kind of winds it up here. He's declared to be the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of wholeness by His resurrection from the dead. What has happened here? The Son of God has transitioned the person of the Son not, not His divine nature, but the person of the Son, has transitioned into taking our flesh and living a human life in our flesh. In our flesh, He did not look like Superman. Who would want to? But He didn't look like Superman, or Batman for that matter, and certainly not like my favorite, Wonder Woman. But so... Uh, <laughs> There was nothing exceptional. At one occasion, people said about him before he was about 30 years of age, people said to him, he must be no more than 50. So he was obviously old for his eight years. In fact, what the prophet says about him is that there was nothing about him that anyone should desire him, he was ordinary ordinary. That's a real encouragement, isn't it? Well, it is for me. Maybe not for you. You're Californians. <laughs> but but it was he, he was ordinary. He could have come from Glasgow. And I a Glaswegian accent that none of you would understand, <laughs> which I don't have, because I'm posh. In his flesh, nobody could see that he was the Son of God. In his death, anybody who had such conceptions of him would have their conceptions shattered. Therefore, he is declared publicly to be the Son of God, clinching all his arguments By being raised from the dead, by rising from the dead. It says here, by the spirit of holiness within him. Here is the Holy Spirit getting in on the business, on the act. The divine Son is transitioning again into a neural salvation as the Son of God with power. When he was declared the Son of God, by openly exercising this real celestial power that is the power of the Holy Spirit because that power is a power peculiar to God and it shines forth in the resurrection then it was put beyond any dispute that He was the Son of God indeed. That is why doubting Thomas doubted That is why Doubting Thomas waited and wondered and would not take anyone else's word for it. Because he'd figured out by listening to Jesus that if this really was Jesus risen from the dead, then there was no other category to put him into than the category of the God of Israel. And when Jesus appears to him and says, Thomas, I hear you weren't taking their word for it, so I want you to take your hand and put it where the spear went. And I want you to put your finger where the nails went. Thomas makes a kind of amended statement of the Shema of Israel. My Lord and my God. The gospel is meant to bring us to God, and it's meant to bring us to God via Jesus Christ. I want to finish by telling you a little story written by a Jewish scholar and rabbi, Jacob Neusner. In his book, A Rabbi Talks With Jesus. And the purpose of the book is to explore precisely where it is that his Judaism, he's a a Jewish believer, his Judaism, which he follows, and Christianity, which he respects, how they ultimately part ways. And this prompts him to seek a kind of dialogue with Jesus. So he goes to the Sermon on the Mount, that's a good place to start, and he compares what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, with the traditions that have been handed down to him within Judaism in the Mishnah and the Torah. And he follows Jesus, and he listens to Jesus' words. He returns, Jesus returns to the same ideas and develops them further. He's constantly moved by Jesus' words. But in the end, he chooses to stay with what he calls eternal Israel. And to explain why he stays, with eternal Israel, rather than trusting in Jesus. He describes an imaginary conversation between a rabbi and a Christian, or one of his students, uh, about the law, that is the law of Moses revealed in the Scriptures. So, the rabbi master says, Referring to the law, can you tell me, we've talked about the law of Moses here, is, is this what the sage Jesus has to say? And the student says, well, not exactly, but pretty close. So the rabbi master says, well, what do you mean by that? What did he leave out? O- or, or he didn't leave anything out. Then what did he add? What did Jesus add to the law of God? And the student looks at his master and says, himself, he added Himself, He was placing himself as the summation and expression and completion of the Torah, of the law of God. And that is precisely where the believing Jew takes issue with Jesus. It is the I in his message. And Neusner cites the story of the rich young ruler, to whom Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go and sell all that you have. Now remember, this young man has, Jesus says, this young man says to Jesus, when when Jesus questions him, is there anything in the law of God that you've broken? He says, no, no, I've kept the Ten Commandments from my youth up. Everything. I've done everything the law requires. Everything from my youth up. Jesus says to him, that's wonderful, but if you would be perfect, go sell all that you have and come, follow me, follow me. Perfection, which is the state of being holy as God is holy, which is demanded by the Torah, now consists in following Jesus. The gospel of God brings us back to God by bringing us first to Jesus. And I want to hold out to you this morning, Jesus. The Son of God, declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Do you believe in Him? Do you trust Him? Is He your Savior? Do you have this life of eternity begun already in you? Are you looking forward to its completion? When we enjoy God forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts this morning to embrace your Son whom you have sent into the world in order that he might bring salvation to us. We pray that you would deepen our love for him and help us to now feed on Christ in our hearts.